Well, tonight we continue our study in this great letter, Paul to the Ephesians Church in Ephesus in what we call today uh, modern-day Turkey, great city in its time, though gone to rack and ruin since then. And sadly, of course, the, the church there got rebuke for its lack of love, loss of first love, which uh, was spoken to it in, in that time. But here, better days prevailed. And we have before us these 13 verses, first 13 verses of chapter 3, to which I append the title, Seeing Things Clearly, Seeing Things Clearly. And that is indeed what the Apostle Paul is able to assure the people he's writing to, that he's seeing things very, very clearly. And you'll notice that having been in very lofty themes and painting a very broad canvas, taking in eternity, looking at the whole scope of God's purposes in eternity and how those come then to settle upon Christ and through him by his spirit to settle upon us and raise us up in our, our deadness, in our spiritual deadness, quickening us and giving us life. And that that life is not something that's just belonging to the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And we saw, didn't we, how brought together now, one body, one new man, these two previously distinct groups where God was dealing with one, but primarily not with the other. But now he's dealing with both and he has brought them together under grace, profiting from the cross, hearing the word of God preached. And so the assurance is given that they belong. They belong to the Lord. And from that, Paul then introduces himself and an I. Verse 1, chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul. He's going to talk a little bit about himself. And, and there we see the prisoner. That's where he is. He's bringing uh, now some personal thoughts. And actually, actually what he does, does here, and any of us who, who digress, who are caught by a thought and then have to sort of suspend what we're going to say because our train of thought has gone in another direction. Well, we have divine mandate because that's exactly what Paul does here. We notice for this reason, verse 1, and that he repeats it in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this reason. And uh, in a sense, what has happened here is that by inspiration, he's digressed. That what has occurred to him as he was writing this under inspiration is a divine digression and it is prompted again by the whole nature of the Gentile mission, that there's more to be said. And he's now going to bring his apostolic authority to bear. And he's going to prove that what he's been saying and indeed what he's suffering is not uh, kind of inconsequential, but that actually as an apostle, he knows what he is talking about. So he's going to now establish, because it's controversial, very controversial. Remember, we were looking last time, we were saying this is the big issue of the day. Well, where do the Gentiles now fit in with this? And indeed, where do the Jews now fit in with this? That was the controversial issue of the day, and still largely is in many sectors of the church. What? How do we understand this? What are we to make of this? And this is where he establishes his credentials 
as an apostle. He knows what he is talking about. And particularly, we'll come to this in just a moment, what we have in verse 13 is in a sense where he's going to with this, that people in the church might wonder, well, he's in prison. That's not exactly a great kind of uh, divine approval, is it? He's in prison. So how can we be so, so certain about all of this? There he is, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. So he's going to show actually that the Gentile mission is not invalidated by him being imprisoned, is not denied by his suffering. In fact, it's actually the opposite. So anyway, my first heading is suffering negates nothing in this. It negates nothing. The fact that Paul is a prisoner and that the result of that could be that they would lose heart. No. And Paul is here insisting that they have every reason to be very, very confident in all that he's just been saying there in chapter 2. And in those verses, um, particularly from uh, verse 11 through to the end of the chapter, verse 22, and they should not think, well, wait a minute, this man is controversial. This man has got into grief because of this. Perhaps God's not really with him. Perhaps his suffering, his difficulty, his imprisonment somehow shows that this was all wrong and that we don't really belong here and that this is is really what the critics of Paul are saying is right, that he is undermining Moses, that he's speaking against the customs of his people, that he's an imposter and a fraud. So Paul has to address that. And Paul immediately says, actually, the reason I'm in prison is because of you Gentiles. It is because of my conviction about what I've received from God and my acting upon it that I'm here in the first place. You remember when in uh, Jerusalem and the accusation was made that Trophimus, the Ephesian, <laughs> was there in the temple. Well, that was forbidden and there was uproar. He wasn't actually. Paul hadn't brought him in. But the people accused him of that and so they rushed to judgment uh, and they would have stoned him, wouldn't they? They'd have killed him on the spot had not the Roman uh, commander intervened. Uh, and kind of lifted him out of all of that uh, mayhem and that effort to kill him. That it was because Paul was himself preaching to the Gentiles, friendly with the Gentiles, that Trophimus was in the city, not in the temple. And therefore, it was because of that, and the uproar that followed from that, and that false accusation that led to one thing, to another thing, to another thing, and he ended up in a Roman prison cell. It was for the Gentiles. You Gentiles, you Gentiles actually in Ephesus. It's because of you, because of my conviction. And that conviction is not just a personal thing, but is indeed sent from heaven. But we just ponder there a moment and pause with that thought a little while. How often we conclude from something going wrong that we're outside of the will of God or that somebody else is outside of the will of God that we conclude, oh dear, oh, it's going wrong for them. Well, it can't go much more wrong, can it, than being in prison uh, and being deprived of your liberty and uh, all of the deprivation of that. It's not a good look to be in prison. So, well, if there's anything that could somehow prove that case, maybe that is it. And we can be quick to, for less than being put into prison, conclude of ourselves, conclude of other people, that they're in the wrong place, that they made the wrong choice or something like that. 
Well, we can't derive that from this particular instance here, or indeed for other ones. That we're very quick to find explanations why it's gone wrong for somebody. Ah, oh, they must have been disobedient on this. Ah, oh, they must have done that wrong. Or they didn't pray enough. Well, dear friends, I'll tell you this now. We can never pray enough. Any one of us can be accused of difficulty. We got into it. We didn't pray enough. And we'd all have to say, sure, we didn't. We're guilty of that. But maybe that is not actually what lies behind it. And maybe, in fact, we're being obedient, as Paul was. But it's just that being obedient doesn't always bring some great reward, some earthly uh, kind of comeback can actually lead to the opposite. That being obedient gets us into trouble. That's what happened to Paul, wasn't it? It got him into trouble and being disobedient at all. But it's landed him in the difficulty, false accusations, everything that followed, and he ended up here in prison. He's the prisoner of Christ, the prisoner of the Lord, he says in chapter 4, verse 1. It's because of his obedience, actually, to the Lord that that trouble has come. And that can often be the case of a Christian. God's servants don't have easy rides. Do you know that? They don't have easy rides. You read your church history. You read before that in the, in the Old Testament. Read it in the New Testament. They don't have an easy ride. There's Micaiah, the prophet, who during Ahab's time in the northern kingdom we are, and uh, oh, there are all the... The prophets, a lying spirit, been sent from God. And they're telling Ahab, yes, go up to Ramoth Gilead and be successful. Yes, take take the battle to the Syrians. You're going to win. Micaiah, who's already in, in, uh, in liberty restricted, and he's warned by the person who is bringing him to the king because King Jehoshaphat, a more noble king from the south, and he has wanted uh, Ahab to really seek a proper prophet. He wasn't convinced by all these others, say, yes, God, and be successful. Micaiah comes, and although he's been told, everybody else is saying, be successful, O king, and hint, hint, you'd be wise if you agreed with them, Uh, but he doesn't, and he warns that the people are going to be scattered, their shepherd, that's the king, is going to not be there, be taken away, and uh, they shouldn't go. Of course, they do go, and Ahab dies, and in the meantime, Ahab has said, and throw him in prison, and given the bread and water of affliction till I return. Micaiah solemnly says, well, if, I've re- if you return, then I have not spoken the word of the Lord. And he had. Ahab didn't return. Uh, he died. So there was difficulty. There was hardship. You can read the prophet Jeremiah page by page. Hardship. People speaking against him. Councils taken against him. Planning his death. Prisoning him. So on and so forth with him. Hebrews 11 is a whole story, catalogue of difficulties, particularly towards the end of that chapter, the hardships that God's servants endured. Why, if you use this hard doctrine that if you're in trouble, you must have done something wrong. Well, that's the doctrine, isn't it, that was doing the rounds in Jerusalem, the the man born blind. Well, what is it? Is it his sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? And the Lord says, neither for his sin nor his parents' sin. That he was born blind, that the works of God may be made manifest in it. And so we read on into church history. There's uh, all the Luthers and the Calvins and all of God's servants there have more than their fair share of hardships, difficulties, people not appreciating them, shouting them down, trying to imprison them, trying to kill them, misunderstanding them. And so often the way that those who see the most must suffer the most, those who 
have the clearest vision, won't be thanked for it. They'll be spoken ill of and people will be jealous of them. They'll be mistrusted, misrepresented. And it has ever been thus. And that suffering that God's servants endure is not at all a negation of their ministry and mission. It's not an invalidating of what they are saying. In fact, it's actually proving it that uh, those who hate the light are going to hate those who bring that light. It gives also the lie, doesn't it, to the the false teaching of, of uh, the word faith kind of people who who likewise would say, well, if you're in trouble, you haven't got enough faith. If you're sick, get busy. You haven't got enough faith. If you're not very wealthy, well, you better get busy again. Get more faith. And this is how. Usually, usually it means, well, buy more of my books or my DVDs or sign up with my ministry and give your tithe to me and watch when a blessing comes. Well, uh, I can tell you this, it won't be coming. Uh, not because you're relying upon those teachers and hoping in their teaching, because that's not what we read in scripture. Actually, if you want more of the Lord's blessing, more of the Lord's help, then we welcome you to the roadway of suffering and of finding Lord's help and grace through ill health and impoverishments and difficulty and barriers and and the rest and the rest and the rest. So suffering negates nothing. Here in the ministry of Paul, it does not end. Critically, fatally wound uh, his cause to be reaching out to the Gentiles. No, rather this. Paul uses now, my second heading is this, high calling. High calling. He is the prisoner of Christ, actually, for you Gentiles. And this is where he, he kind of veers away from where he's going to pick up at verse 14. Talks about himself. Talks about what God has shown him. How important that is, what he has been shown. And how Paul himself, this dispensation of the grace of God, a, a stewardship, a responsibility that was given to him by the grace of God. This was something that God gave. It wasn't Paul's to earn or Paul having a bright idea, but this came from God. And in uh, verse 3, it's revelation. This came by revelation. And therefore, this is from heaven. This is a high calling. And that grace which was given to me, he says in verse 2, for you. And he's got the Gentiles in view here. You, Gentiles. This was for you, actually, that God spoke to me. I'm in prison here, but actually I'm in prison here, in a sense, because I was given this revelation and I couldn't be disobedient to it. And I had to speak according to it. And he talks again in verse 8 about that, that grace. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to be part of that grace that was given to him, an apostle, so he worked mighty signs and wonders among the Gentiles. Remember in Acts 15, when the Council of Jerusalem was deliberating, should they all be circumcised? Should the Lord Moses also, all of its kind of entirety, it was much of the entirety of it as the, the Judaizing company would, would, were willing to tolerate with it. And of course, no. And part of the reason was that the signal blessing, the very conspicuous blessing of God was on the Gentile ministry because of the signs and wonders. And if you recall, when Paul recounts to them, they fell silent because there were so many and they were so prodigious. And that proved that ministry. That's all part of that grace that was given to Paul to preach among the Gentiles. And, and to show, and really 
that ministry equal also to show the Jews what this ministry means, to show them what the implications of that were. Those, of course, were fed into the Acts 15 Council of Jerusalem. But here, uh, Paul, really following on from what we had at the end of chapter 2, just builds on that. So that in verse 6, well, what is it that the Gentiles should be? Fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's they're now on an equal footing. That there's no distinction. That distinction has been abolished in that way. They they are all partakers. They're all part of the same body. Not sort of, well, that's one kind of plan for you and another plan for you. That those who believe from a Jewish background, those who believe from a Gentile background, are in the same body, and they're partakers of the same promise, and they have the same Holy Spirit, and every part of it, and every particular of it is now shared. And that's Revelation, that which was hugely controversial, and where the Gentiles might think, well, maybe all this controversy surrounding Paul, maybe there's something in this, and maybe we shouldn't be here, maybe we don't belong here. He's in prison, after all. That does make it look a bit sort of bit iffy. And Paul is saying, not at all. This was Revelation. This was given to me by the grace of God. And this, he says, he's insisting upon it so as to assure them and to build them up in it. Were we just to cast an eye over some of the, the biblical references and Paul's a special uh, ministry to, to the Gentiles? Not, he didn't preach to the Jews and with great effects at times, but there was a specific and very, very fresh calling that was for Paul, especially among the apostles. So Acts 9, and there in verse 15, and Ananias is told this when he's told to go, uh, and that Saul of Tarsus, who is praying, blind, and that he'll receive his sight when Ananias goes there. And when Ananias is reluctant, then the Lord says, Acts 9.15, go for his chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Gentiles comes up first, and for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He is prisoner of Christ. He already knew what was coming because that was right there at the beginning of that revelation given him. Or later on, he speaks here in, in defense of himself in Acts chapter 22, and the vision that uh, that he had, and he is told by the Lord, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles, from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. That was his particular mission and calling. Or again, Acts 26, there in verses 17 to 18, and we read, Lord saying to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, for the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the door is flung wide open and that by direct revelation. That is from God. That is a, an authorized ministry. And Paul already has been told he would suffer for it. And there he is in prison suffering because the revelation that he was given. And uh, we might just then finally briefly turn to Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, when Paul is in Jerusalem and where he meets with Peter and James and John. And we see on this that uh, 
his particular ministry there too, the Gentiles is recognized. But on the contrary, that when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, where he worked effectively in Peter, the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Not exclusively, but primarily. And that particular province of work was opened up to the apostle Paul. And he describes what he is doing, what he is preaching as, as a mystery. One of these things that's actually there. It's there. It's discernible, but somehow people miss it until it brought out to the full light of day during the period now of the apostles and prophets. And we read earlier Isaiah chapter 49. And if uh, people were puzzled that God should be reaching out to the Gentiles, well, they really shouldn't have been. Because here is a promise that is made to the Lord Jesus Christ by his father. This is the covenant that he's making with his son. And what does he say to his son? Verse 6, indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. You should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, we all have blind spots in scripture, and that was a particular house speciality for the, the Jewish people, that, that, that they were not willing to countenance, even though there, there it was, and it always was there. But now it's been brought out to the full light of day, and that because the Lord is now giving clarity to the apostles and the prophets. That mystery, it was there, but it was somewhat concealed. Now it's open. And everybody can see that now the Gentiles are sharing in these same things, these same blessings as were in the sort of main line of the believing Jews, as was theirs by all of their history and all that had been spoken to them. But now others were going to come and share the same blessings. And that was what Paul was getting into deep, deep trouble in preaching. Well, it's a high calling, and that's is where the apostles were placed in a special, special category. So we don't say, well, are there apostles and prophets today? Some would say, yes, how can there be? We've got to be an eyewitness of the risen Lord to qualify, and a fair few other qualifications too, which they fail in. Prophets, and I would say that prophets actually only functioned while there were apostles, because you needed apostolic authority working above the prophetic ministry. But, well, now we would say the age of prophecy has closed. We can read that at the end of Revelation chapter 22. Don't add to it. Don't add any words to this word of prophecy. And Well, this is the word of prophecy, the Bible. Keep with that. And so no need for those things today. People have different ideas and rather think that uh, things can be much more exciting in their views than we presently have and uh, that we should be doing all of these things today and branching out this way and that way. But no, we've got the Bible here. There's enough in this Bible to awaken sleeping churches. And that's very often what apostles today are meant to do. They're meant to crack the whip. They're meant to sort of set out on a, a new direction and give sort of structure and planning to the church. Well, most of those modern day apostles that I could name have led the church into a ditch. 
And so they've actually undermined any credibility to their claims, uh, let alone when you read the Bible, which actually undermines the credibility of their claims from, from day one. But anyway, we move on. There's the high calling and my final heading, nothing outside of Christ. And Paul, as it were, is, is sort of bringing uh, through the, uh, the ministry to the Gentiles, showing that he has the authority from heaven. And the fact he's in prison doesn't undermine the authority and his calling to minister to them. Though he claims no great things for himself, less than the least of all the saints, he would be the first to say, I persecuted the church. That uh, it was no ordinary sin that mine was, that I actually fought against. Very, very Christ, I fought against the people who loved him. I'm so, so culpable. And yet, I was given this grace to do what? Well, to preach among the Gentiles, to preach what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, we hardly do justice, do we, to that phrase in the remaining few minutes, really, that we have this evening. But a few thoughts to go with that, that we never, never exhaust and never can exhaust everything that there is in Christ. We can't, whether it's amongst the Gentiles or amongst the Jews, wherever a person receives Christ, then they've received so, so much. Insearchable. Can't get to the bottom of it. Can't get to the limit of it. And were you to think, well, in what way does the Lord Jesus Christ connect up with Christian teaching? Well, he connects up with all of it, doesn't he? He's at the center of all of it. Justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. He's in the middle of it all. Then it's coming from the cross to us. It's mediated by him to us. It's on account of him that these things happen to us. On account of him that we receive the spirit. On account of him that we are now sharing in his, his place as a son before God. We're now adopted into that because of him. And because of him, we will be finally in heaven. And there are deep things here, aren't there, just that this is all actually uh, what what is the church uh, that Christ has won the bride that he's purchased, the, the, the one that he came on earth to seek her. And this is now demonstrated to principalities and powers. Well, we kind of look at that, really? Us? Yes, apparently us too. Uh, we, we kind of think, well, who are we? You know, we're, we're not sort of in the front line of things here in the sleepy backwater. We, do what we can for the Lord and um, we wish we could do more, but there we are. That's what we are. The people we have, limitations. Yeah, but apparently we are part of the demonstrating the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and powers. On this rather wet, cold December evening, uh, here's something to think about. And here's something actually to think, well, perhaps we, we could be bringing more to our calling uh, and our place in Christ but if this is Christ's manifold wisdom, it's being revealed here to principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Well, the community at large makes little of us and thinks probably little of us, but somewhere else there's another verdict, an estimate, and that this, this is Christ's work. And this is, this is what he's done, bringing these people and his power subdued their sins and he's given life to them. He's going to take them through to glory. And the principalities and powers, and these are good principalities and powers. Think much of that. That there is, if we can understand these things amongst the angels, amazement and wonder 
and marvelling uh, that from that blood that was shed, from this baby that was born, from this trial of life, this man of sorrows, from that cross, and from the resurrection, from all of that, that life, that ministry, that person, should have come all this church, <laughs> this church, that church, churches through the ages, churches yet to come, churches that will be planted, new causes, old causes that will be revived, places where suddenly something will happen, preserving causes that looked as if they were going to die, and then suddenly don't. And that is all the manifold wisdom of Jesus Christ revealed. And it's all eternal, the purpose, well, where does this all start from? Where indeed? We can't even begin to say. It's an eternity. Where does that begin? Well, it doesn't, does it? It's always been there somehow, (laughs) because God's always been there somehow. None of us are qualified to say much more on that, are we just? That's where it was. This didn't just happen recently or just happen there at that time. It's in the mind of God in eternity that this should be here. We should be here. Us here, these people, this company of saints, and that is the eternal purpose of God. And from it, well, from the riches, isn't it? Then we have what we have in verse 12. Well, there there are conclusions, always are, aren't there? Implications that these things are not just said because there's something nice to say in that, but because there's something happens from that. And it's our prayer life and our are coming to to God, the the evidences that we are able to rest upon, these riches of Christ, of the fullness of the salvation that he, the Son of God, has brought. And so we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him, that we are not brash and presumptuous, as I'm afraid many, many are, that we take hold of our privileges and marvel at them, that we should have these privileges, that we should be uh, now making known the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and powers. We're doing that. We are. And so we conclude from that, then we really ought to ought to be bold. <laughs> bold in our profession of faith, bold in our expectations of what God might do, bold when we pray. We have this access. We come with confidence in that access because Christ has died for us and we're now children of God and we, we have an inheritance and we have these riches that we can explore and out of which grace is given to us to even help us to pray in the first place. And so we come and so we pray, we pour out our hearts, we're bold in the protestation of our Laments and our sorrows, our disappointments, we make those known. We make our wants known and our needs, our sorrows. And we pray with conviction, believing he hears. He hears on account of the Lord Jesus. We ask, we don't stop back. And the whole idea of access with confidence that we can come. We do belong here. That we're not to think, well, I'm no Luther, I'm no Spurgeon, and I'm no Lord Jones, so really, can I come? Yes, you can come. I can come. We, any of us, can come and know that we belong. You know, sometimes you, you might go somewhere, I don't know, imagine a stately home or something like that, and it's kind of open to the public. But it, you might sort of feel, oh, are we allowed in this room here? Or um, can we touch any of these things? And, 
is somebody going to say, oh, you can't come in here, that's private. Um, so, you know, you move it around a little bit, a little bit perhaps on edge, you don't feel quite at home. But here we're told, no, you are at home. <laughs> you can go in all the rooms, actually. Uh, you can ask what you will. You, you can seek for those things. Ask, and it will be given to you. That's, that was the promise there, wasn't it? And through faith in him, because... Well, who's authorized us? Who, who's let us come in into the, the throne room of heaven in our prayers? Who, who's authorized us to expect to be in heaven one day? Who, who is it? What was him, wasn't it? Then we have all the authority we need because he has said, these people are mine. I've saved them from their sin and I love them. And I want them to enjoy everything that I enjoy. Where I'm going to be, I want them to be there also. And here on earth, I want them to know that they're loved and they're preserved and protected. And the, I've given them the Holy Spirit to actually tell them those very things. And so we have access with confidence. Not sort of timidly entering in, do I really belong here? Should I really be praying here? Can I really expect God to answer my prayers? Uh, do, do I have a place amongst all these eminent saints and all the people from church history? Well, yes, we do. Uh, we may wish we were much more than this, friends, don't we just? But we belong. And the least saints, well, Paul calls himself the least of all the saints and places himself, <laughs> as it were, the apostle, puts himself in last position. Then, well, we can take a little confidence from that, that uh, we perhaps belong after all, and uh, that God would would bless and help people, not perfect people, but for whatever they feel, their shame, their guilt, their weakness are told. No, <laughs> come boldly, <laughs> come confidently, because that's exactly what the Lord Jesus died for you to have. That you may know these things, that you may be sure of them, and that you may be able to employ all these privileges, not just sort of hold them as something I don't really know what to do with this. No, but pray, go to him. He's your heavenly father. Go to him and pray. And that's as we live out our lives, well, it can feel so small. In our callings, wherever we go, we can feel as if we're invisible. We, we don't count as prime minister going to sort of give you and me an email, phone call, just to reassure us I'm, I'm on you, I've got your case here, I'm aware of your struggles and your bills and everything then. Dream on, friend, I'm afraid there, dream on. But the Lord, he's with us and we can be confident in that, going out to work wherever we go traveling a distance i don't know wherever but we can know that we can be confident that he is with us that our god is for us and not against us the apostles saw things clearly not so he could pride himself on it and so that's why because i'm an apostle too bad for the rest of you but know that you may know you may know these things too and be assured of these things that's why he was given that revelation he's ended up in prison with it and he'll say, well, that's okay. I knew that was coming, but this doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, it's because of you that I'm here in the first place because it is true. And so we too can be deeply assured and know that, yes, we belong. We're in the body. We're fellow heirs. We're partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Amen. <laughs>